0: Welcome to Peripheral Thinking, the series of conversations with academics, advisors, entrepreneurs and activists, people all championing those ideas on the margins, the periphery. Why is this important? Well, as the systems on which we've depended for the last 50, 60 stroke thousand years crumble and creak, people increasingly looking for new stories, new ideas, new myths, if you like, that might guide and inform how they live and work. So in these conversations, we take time to speak to those people who are championing the ideas on the margins, championing the ideas on the periphery, those ideas which are going to shape the mainstream tomorrow. Uh, And our hope is that you're a little bit inspired, a little bit curious enough to take some of these ideas and bring them back to the day-to-day of your work and your life. Ray, thank you for joining me on Peripheral Thinking. You're welcome, Ben. It's a pleasure to be on your show as a guest. Ah, brilliant. So actually, we met, I think, in a field uh, in Sussex just over a year ago.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, at the Happy Startup School Summer Camp. What a great event that was.
0: I was having a conversation with uh, Carlos uh, and Lawrence a few weeks before the summer summer camp this year, and um, it was a kind of meeting of people who were running workshops there, And uh, I think the question that uh, that Carlos asked was, you know, what was our expectation of of summer camp uh, this coming year? So the year that's that's just gone. And I kind of I realised that uh, the way I sort of articulated was that it was like a bit of a liminal space. Uh, It's a kind of gap in which to sort of fall into where a lot of the other sort of uh, structures and sort of patterns and responsibilities of life are not present. So you're able to just sort of fall into this space. And let what happens happen. Yeah.
1: Was it cold in the sleeping bag, though? Do
0: you know what? <laughs> it was bloody freezing. The kind of the, the lingering trauma of the year before was like this kind of mythic conversation. Do you know, do you know what happened last year? Do you know how cold it was? Because that year when we were both there, my God, was it cold at night? This year, no, it was oh, not. Anything thank God. Ever. Thank God. Um, but anyway, yeah, so we kind of, we met then and um you told me actually you were just in the process, I think, of of finishing your book book at that time is that right or yeah. had you just finished a draft? I can't remember where would you it was
1: it was finished but the the official launch was on the 1st of November which was just after summer camp and I had this wonderful launch event in London you know um sponsored by one of my great friends it was, was really fantastic so I had it was just before the launch. Yeah, that's right.
0: Beautiful, and so that is uh, the ideal segue. So you are an author. Thank you. You have a book. I do. <laughs> um, what give us a little a little overview? What, what is what what is the book, and why was the book? Come? Yeah, I will do that. And
1: and part of that is to say that I never ever dreamed or thought of I'd be an author. You know, I was a CEO of a business in the UK, based in London, and uh, as a result of some of the things we'll probably talk about, I stopped doing that and went on a journey to find out, really for me, what I wanted to do from that point forward. And it it, it was a journey that I, actually my friend said, why don't you take a six month sabbatical? And I I listened to those conversations and I thought, yeah, that's a good idea, six months sabbatical, I'll work it all out, come back, start something new. And that was where it kind of went off the rails a bit because I realized in that six months that process of reflection and re-examination is quite a deep process for some people it certainly was for me and after six months I thought I'm not ready I'll carry on and I'll carry I carried on longer then I started doing things I never dreamed of I ended up living out of my backpack for 14 years and during that time people obviously asked me how come I've been living out my backpack so long and I told them stories about it and why and most of them said to me strangely well if you ever write a book about this journey let me know because I'd be really interested to read it and I just laughed and said no way I'm just doing this for me I'm not writing a book and then after about 50 people had said that I thought oh my god the universe is telling me to write a book you know so so I wrote I wrote the book mostly for those people that had asked and my mom and a few others but it seems like you know other people are are interested in the story too because a lot of people are reading it so um I wrote the book I finished it on the, at the end of last year, and it's been out for about a year now.
0: Yeah, and so the book is called?
1: Life Without a Tie. And that is because it occurred to me that before I went on that journey, my life was pretty much defined by certain ties. Like I'm, The metaphor I use are like the guy ropes of a tent. Now, I know tent design has changed over the years. But when I was young, a tent had four corners that you tied down with pegs. And the four corners of my life were my marriage my career my home my actual house and my community of friends and those four things kind of governed every decision and determined who i was being in the world and what decisions i made and what i did and didn't do and i had a really rare opportunity i think it doesn't happen to that many people where all of those ties for one reason or another got cut in a very short space of time and i just found myself completely lost and bewildered as to how to identify who i was (laughs) so i had a chance to start go back to zero and start with a clean slate and redesign the life i was in yeah and that was why i called it life without a tie because i realized as i was in that reflection period wow these ties are much more powerful than i'd ever consciously been aware that they were because they were limiting my choices and Stopping me from making courageous decisions and decisions that would feed my soul and really be good for my heart, but not good for my image, maybe, or not good in terms of what others expected of me. Because in the book by Bronnie Ware, who talks about the top five regrets of the dying, she's a hospice nurse. This is a very famous book. Um, She says she's when she speaks to someone at the end of their life and says, what do you most regret about your life? They always say the same five things. And the number one thing is I wished I'd lived my life true to myself not the life that others expected of me. And I was reading this book when I was in the middle of a divorce and my father was dying, and I was thinking, God, wow, that really hit me hard. The life that's true for me, not the life that others expected of me. And I suddenly thought, wow, I have no idea what the life that's true for me is. I know the life I've been living, which is the life that others expected of me. I liked some parts of it. It was all right, but it wasn't me. I thought, what does that life that is true for me actually look and feel like? I don't know. I'm going to need to go and find out, you know, <laughs> going to need to work that out. That's the highest priority.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because uh, I realised when I was reflecting on the title, the idea of kind of life without a tie, I kind of, and the one, so my initial kind of was like, oh, it's quite an inspiring thing, like freedom, like <laughs> life without time. And then kind of the realisation that, of course, there's potentially kind of negative connotations to that too, because yeah. I guess it, it, but it's partly a thing around kind of language in a way, isn't it, like, there's kind of because uh, what you were sort of describing there in a way was a bit of rootlessness in a sense the kind of the, the kind of familiar ties left you kind of rootless uh, and in a, but in a sense like actually to have all the kind of ties of those things cut is it can also be a, a kind of sort of separation, so I guess there's a there's a bit of a kind of paradox in there a kind of opportunity to recreate, but also maybe some things lost
1: yeah, well, bear in mind as I, as I said earlier, I was only expected to go for six months. So I wasn't, in my head, I wasn't cutting any seriously big ties, I was just getting out of London for six months and doing some traveling and doing some reflection. That was how it occurred to me in the beginning. But it was as the journey unfolded, I could see that there was so much more to find out and discover in terms of the depths of awareness. I I kind of like, after six months, I went and did a 10-day Vipassana retreat in a Buddhist monastery in Thailand. And... That just blew my mind, Ben, because I'd never, I was 45 years old at this point, and never had I been silent for more than a few minutes. I mean, literally, I mean, it sounds a weird thing to say. How can you get through half your life and never sit in silence for a few minutes, more than a few minutes, it just seemed weird. So the idea of even just sitting for 10 days and just observing my own mind doing its trickery and watching the thoughts pass through, it was a massive revelation. I'd never, had, never been invited to do that. And I learned so much from that experience. And I realized, wow, you know, my mind's running the show here, not my spirit, not my soul. And uh, that I decided to really work around that because I, I really didn't want that to continue.
0: How far into the initial journey was that? Was the retreat about six months? Right. Okay. So that was sort of
1: right at the end of the so-called sabbatical.
0: So yeah. So maybe just a little bit of context. So uh, what, what? Who? What was Ray? Who was
1: Ray? Before well, uh, Ray was Ray was a, a CEO of a management consulting business he founded in 1997 with his wife as a business partner. You know, I, all I knew in those days was how to drive a business to get hard results and grow it. and... Make, make quotas and targets, I've done that all my life. And so, by the year 2000, the first place had entered the top 100 consultancy league table. We had a reputation, we were making good profits. And I was given the Daily Telegraph Business Leader of the Year Award as CEO of the company because they were kind of inspired by the vision I had for how I wanted to lead the business we had. And I, I kind of loved that journey in some ways it was a it was like a big learning curve for me I'd never been in that position of responsibility before and so I was completely new a greenhorn you know I had a mentor I was learning growing but then I you know after the first couple of years and I was sort of more comfortable in the role without some the need of needing to push I I sort of started to sense wow you know this isn't I'm not sure where this is going for me I don't I, I kind of originally thought I would do it to Help my partner establish the business and then go and do the thing I really wanted to do, which I never identified. I always had that the deep, deep back of my mind. I'll do this for a while because Charlotte needs the support and she's this her idea for the business. I was there to support her to get it going. And I always said to her, you know, once we, we've got this business established, I, I'm going to go off and probably do something else, but I'm not sure what. <laughs> but there's something else never occurred to me. So I just kept on going because it created a good lifestyle for the business.
0: Um, when you said in getting the award, um, you said because they recognized there was something in the vision that you had. What was the vision that you had for the business that you think that they, that they were drawn to? Well, you'll laugh
1: now because what I'm going to say is so common in the business language these days. It's kind of like mainstream. But this was in the year 2000. So this is like 23 years ago. My vision was that businesses were not about profits and customers and market share, etc. Businesses were... Um, an opportunity to help people reach their full potential and live their dreams. And so my vision was very much focused on how do we attract and retain and build a team of people who love coming to work, who absolutely adore being here, who feel like they're growing, prospering, Um, their enthusiasm for life will just rub off on clients in a way that beats any other sales pitch. Um, and that when clients come to our office if they're checking us out to see can we give this company a contract to help us when they come to our office they'll just see this amazing group of people really loving life and in working superbly and they'll just feel it they'll just feel the vibe and go this is this is what we want in our organization that was my vision and so i set the company up from the outset to to make that possible and we even we did a thing in those days which was a we gave people a a scholarship of a thousand pounds a year on top of their salary and said, use this for learning anything you want, not work related. It's just so that you can be growing outside of work as well as what we're going to train you to do in work. And so people went off and learned languages or they went rock climbing or they spent their scholarship on whatever they felt would help them grow and make them braver.
0: it's interesting because I think we'll come in a little while to talk about the idea of kind of tremors, like signals from your future self somewhat. And knowing how the book goes is kind of really interesting, isn't it, that your vision for what you wanted the company to be was to create a place where people could thrive by embracing all the parts of themselves, which are not catered for at work, essentially. Uh, and that you know that became what you kind of lived through but we'll come back to that because I think that's kind of important yeah, exactly. uh important sort of thing to 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 come back to so all of this going on you're at you gonna, kind of, you know kind of peak peak ray business awards recognition all this thing but then um things start to fall apart yeah fall i mean i I'd,
1: I'd, I'd had um conversations during those years with with Charlotte my business partner and she sort of sensed that i was slightly off, off the rails really, slightly out of place. She knew it. She, we never really talked about it or addressed it fully, but she could sense it. And then for her, there was her own journey going on, which I can't really comment on that much, but she had her own journey going on. And eventually um, what happened was she, she met somebody and decided that was the person she wanted to be married to. And they're, they're married to, as to, even today. You know, They've been married for 20 odd years and they've got two lovely kids, etc. So she she had to leave and that was a massive shock when she presented that to me and said you know this is what's happened I've met someone I think that's where I want to go and I want to be out of the company as well and so it was one of those things where those tremors that had started and I'd ignored or put to one side now I couldn't ignore it anymore because the actual set of the theater that the actual stage was now falling apart <laughs> So it wasn't just like some of the audience members leaving. It was now the stage was actually falling over, and there wasn't going to be a stage. And and then on on top of both of those things, at the same time, more or less, my father got very ill and he he passed away. And he'd been a massive advocate of travel. You know, he was retired and loved to travel. And he always used to say to me, Ray, why don't you travel more? I mean, you work so hard. You just work twenty four seven. You know, when when are you actually going to have a life? You know, what, what are you doing all this for? I think you know go and do some traveling and so that had sort of stuck in my mind quite a bit and so then these circumstances all started to conspire to 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 make me make a decision and say right i'm gonna go and do this
0: right and so essentially all of these things happening simultaneously means the company is essentially ceasing to exist uh so kind of being forced to kind of, you know, explore what next, relationship not existing, relationship falling apart, familial sort of structures going, dad dying. Yeah,
1: the company had a life as an entity in its own right. And so I looked at all the options for what to do at this point. You know, should I get a replacement business partner was one option. I ruled that out because, you know, when I think about the great partnerships I've seen in my life, like Torville and Dean and Morecambe and Wise and things like this, you know, when you think of them. You just can't imagine replacing somebody you've gelled so brilliantly with with someone. It was just out, I just couldn't see myself going there. Um, we looked at the possibility of selling the company to another rival company and, and I even had talks with one and that they made a decent offer to do that. Um, but the terms and conditions of the offer meant that Charlotte and I would be tied to the, to the business for another two years. And that was gonna just be impossible emotionally. It was just impossible so we both said we can't do that either so then we sort of said how about a graceful tapering so we then just basically made a decision to stop taking on new clients and that gave us a sort of tapered tapering out over a sort of 12-month period where all the revenue was delivered you know and there was no new business coming and we had a way then a chance to find new homes for all the people that were working for us because that was important to me i really wanted people to have uh, a next step in their careers if they wanted it. And I helped them all find positions like that and, um, and just taper the thing out until there was virtually nothing left, you know? Um, and that's what I decided to do in the end. And that worked out really pretty well. I'd say,
0: I guess the, the kind of symbolic image in my mind is that there is, there's a point somewhere in this, which is kind of Ray in a dark room where it sort of feels like the kind of, all, all of these things are kind oh, of gone. You hit the nail on the yeah. head there, babe. I mean, it was, yeah. I, I,
1: There was a point where I was so low, I didn't think I could ever have felt as low as I did. I thought this is the most worst time of my life. And it was about six months into the separation and I couldn't see the future at all. And I liked being this successful businessman that people respected me for, but I couldn't see myself wanting to do that anymore. So I didn't quite know where to go and I was depressed. I was really depressed and unhappy. I felt broken. And then a friend of mine in Australia, a really good friend called Julie, she said, again, you know, why don't you go traveling? Because she had done that for a couple of years and it had really changed her outlook. And she encouraged me to consider it. And another person said, you know, when you're in a place of despair and you really can't see the way forward and it's completely bleak, one thing you can do is for a period, you take your attention off yourself and put it 100% on someone else. Go and find someone else who's, got a bigger need than you have let's say and go and help them a hundred percent just focus on them i thought god that sounds amazing i'm going to do that so i started looking for someone i could do that with and that and bizarrely a really good friend of mine who'd emigrated to australia with her husband had breast cancer and um i i contacted her i said i i know you've got breast cancer and you're it's in early stages and you're you're going to be starting your chemo and stuff um how do you feel about me coming out to Australia for a month and just being with you and taking care of some of the things that you can't do? And she said, oh, that'd be lovely. That'd be brilliant. (laughs) I'd love that. So I thought, great, I'm just going to go to Australia. I'm going to forget about my stuckness and despair. I'm just going to go and look after her, be with Matt, her and Pete, their little son. And I did. I did that for a month and it was brilliant. And at the end of that month, nothing had changed. I was still stuck in the despair. And I realized that the advice that my friend had given me had no, they said maybe something will change, something will shift. They didn't say how long the shift would take. (laughs) I was expecting it to happen the day I left or something. I'm ready now. (laughs) Yeah, I was ready, but it didn't happen. But then uh, my friend Julie, who lived lived in Cairns, she said, you're in Australia, before you go back to me, why don't you come up for a few days and spend some time with me and my mum? I said, that's a good idea, I'll do that. And I went up to see her and... She said, me and my mum are going to the theatre. We're going to see this play. Do you want to come? I said, OK. And um, she, she, we were in the theatre watching this play. And in the interval, I was reading the programme. And I could see this box in the top right-hand corner of one page saying, we're going to audition for the next play. It's called Out of Order by Ray Cooney, which is a British he's a British playwright. And it's like one of those Whitehall farces, you know. And I looked at it, and it was about a British Member of Parliament. I turned to my friends and said, I should be in that play. I, I've got a British accent. I could play the Member of Parliament. I was saying it purely for a joke. I wasn't an actor. I don't know why I was saying it. It was just filling time in the interval. And um, they both looked at me and said, well, we know the director of the play. You know, why don't you go to the audition? It's on Sunday. You'll still be here. (laughs) So I laughed. I said, that's crazy. I've got to go back to England. I've got all these clients to work for and I need to pay the mortgage, blah, blah, blah. They said, well, don't try to get a part in the play. Just go to the audition for fun. So I said, OK, that's a good idea. I'll do that. So on the Sunday I went, and my, my brother's married to an actress, a professional actress, and I was dating an actress at the time. So um, I thought, I'm gonna give this a good shot. I put my, threw myself into it, and at the end of the auditions, the director came over to me and said, can I have a word? And I said, oh my God, okay, yeah, all right. What, what have I done? What have I done? Uh, he said, uh, what's your situation, Ray? Are you actually really living here? You know? I said, yeah, I live here. This is my address in Cairns. I didn't tell him I was flying back to England in three days. He asked me a few questions, and I got this sense they liked me in some part or other. And um, I said, when are you gonna decide? He said, oh, about a week's time. I thought, damn, I'm gonna be already back in England. So I flew back to London, and I told Julie they were gonna call and let me know, and they did. When I got to Heathrow, she rang me and said, guess what, Ray, you're not gonna believe this. I said, what? They want you to play the lead role in the play. This character, George, he has 400 lines in the script. He's the central comedic character, a bit like a sort of Frank Spencer type character, very boppish idiot, but all the action revolves around him. And I said, you're kidding me. She said, I've given you 24 hours of breathing space. I've told Wayne you won't be ready for a day. So I called him and said, are you sure about this? You know, I'm totally untried. I've got no experience. He said, I, we know, we know, we think you'll be perfect. We're going to support you. You've got three months rehearsals to prepare. And I thought, this feels like I'm being called to do this, like almost like God wants me to do it or something weird. And I thought, you know what? I still don't feel I can do this until I get what I call a confirmation signal. And I'm big on this now. What would be my confirmation signal? What would confirm to me this is the thing I'm meant to do? Aha. Uh-huh. Right, I'm gonna ring each of the clients I'm obligated to work with who've been waiting for me to come back. And I'm gonna tell them this story like I'm telling it to you now. I'm gonna say, I can't believe this has happened, but it has happened. If you give me your blessing to postpone our work for th- another three months, which might m- not be great for you, but if you give me your blessing, I'm gonna go. And if you say, I want you to stay and do the work, I'm gonna stay. And you know, every single one of them said, if I was you, I would definitely go 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 and do that they knew my situation so they were quite sympathetic they said go and so i got the blessing of every one of those and that was my confirmation signal i flew back two days later and i acted in the play and even then i still didn't realize that this was the 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 piece of information i was waiting for this advice if you help a friend 100 percent something will change but it was as the play run came to an end and I was preparing to fly back to London to be Ray the businessman again, I suddenly thought, oh my God, it just occurred to me on the aeroplane flying back, I was going, I've spent the last three months consciously becoming George the character. I've learned the words he says, the way he walks, the voice he uses, which is his horrible voice. I had to become this character George and take the direction of the director and play the character exactly how he wanted him to be seen. And I thought, you know what? Ray the businessman is a character. It's not me. I am playing the character, but I'd sort of, I sort of—I never thought of it until that moment that I was playing a character in Ray the businessman. but I'd authored him. Ray lived in a certain house. He wore certain clothes. He drove a Mercedes. You know, he was a CEO. This—I never thought of that guy as a character. I just thought that's who I was. And then I suddenly went, "Oh my God! It's not who I am. I'm a character. The character and me are not the same." And I thought, "Wow, that means." I can modify the character, I can change the script, or I can just kill the character off. I can end the series and say, that series is over. It's not on telly anymore. And so I decided to kill the character off. That's what I decided to do.
0: So uh, this point then, you, the kind of realisation that Ray, the CEO, is an actor. And it's really interesting you, kind of, you talk about that because when you were just describing it and you, you sort of say, you know, you're saying to a guy, but, you know, I'm not an actor. And my first thought was, you know, all of us, particularly in, like, in a business context, we're all fucking actors, really, aren't we? Just, it's a, all we're doing is kind of acting in a, in a sense. And so it's kind of really interesting that you made that link back. To yeah, I say, I say that because le- much
1: latterly, I went on a 10-day method acting course. And I started to realise, well, there's a hell of a lot more to acting than I had figured. There's a massive amount of detail that actors do that I didn't have any awareness of. So,
0: yeah, so not, not to belittle it, like we're all actors and whatever you're yeah. doing is kind of nothing. Clearly they have a depth of expertise uh, that yeah. is uh, beyond yeah. the pretender so this kind of realization okay i could i can end the uh i can kill the character i can end the series but you do have some kind of lingering commitments uh back in back in the uk so i decided to kill the
1: character and the character of ray the businessman being gone ray didn't need a swanky house in west london anymore because that character didn't was wasn't existing uh, i decided uh, on uh, evaluated renting my house out for a while or uh, selling it etc all things being equal, I decided to sell the house in London and move down to a smaller property. But because I hadn't yet gone on the six-month sabbatical, because the, the play happened just before I did made that decision, um, I, I thought, well, I'll wait till I've done the six-month sabbatical and I'll come back and I'll get the new property then. Um, so I, so I, I was able to wrap up my life i gave away all of the furniture and things that were in the house or sold some of it and gave most of it away i cleared my life down to a bag of clothes and a laptop and that was all i had left and no character to play so I was completely undefined anonymous ray with a bag of clothes and a laptop and i went to to thailand and uh, i'd met um, a woman called annie in london who was really lovely and she'd sort of invited me to travel with her as well and so and she'd had quite a lot of experience of solo travelling and so and I hadn't had any so it gave me the confidence to start the journey because i would be with someone who kind of knew the ropes and and we got
0: on really well and we liked each other and there was a romance budding you know it's lovely so to kind of just for the point of uh, clarifying this is a few months into what becomes a 14 year 14 year journey. Um so I I'm kind of I'm curious, so yeah, coming back to to one of the things, when you then are sort of looking back, and obviously there were the kind of very real, very large um sort of um shocks which forced the change, like kind of your know, relationship falling apart, your dad dying, kind of forcing this kind of big change on you but also like you kind of acknowledge maybe you know there had always been a kind of feeling that maybe you would do something else were there kind of when you look back now were there other markers other signals which were kind of sort of felt seen or known before the big markers came which maybe yeah. retrospectively you go oh maybe these were clues or cues that something was coming down the line
1: yeah there was like you know when i was married the absence of high levels of excitement about domesticity was a big warning for me you know like my 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 wife charlotte was would want to sort of talk about the things we're going to do to the house and her plans for that and the garden and all those things and i just noticed for me it just made me feel heavy you know it didn't bring any i wasn't particularly interested i didn't have joy around it i wasn't sort of a nest builder a homemaker those kind of things. And that troubled me because I thought, wow, I'm not going to need to be because I'm going to be a dad at some point. You know, just assumed that I would go down that path like everyone does. And Charlotte used to, was very skillful at asking me about that in a good way. And I had, I came up with this, even had this character, I used to say, oh, I'm turning into Fulham man. And Fulham man represented something I didn't want to be. It was like a sort of overweight, fat, you know, kind of, comfy, middle-class guy, you know, with living in suburbia, living in that sort of fancy life. And I never, ever dreamed when I was at school I'd be Fulham man. And I was sort of turning into Fulham man. And, I was, and that was another sign. I was overweight. I didn't feel attractive. When I had photographs taken with me and my dad, I looked like his brother, not his son. I kind of was aging quite rapidly. And if you see pictures of me from when I was in my forties, and then pictures of me when I was traveling. I look way, much, much better and younger in, in my 50s than I did in my 40s. I mean, almost like my aging started to reverse, actually. Uh, and so that was a telltale sign. And then, the bit, then another one was when we started to try for a family, Charlotte had a miscarriage. And then on top of all of that, I decided to go on a little retreat one year when I was in, i just turned 40, and I went to Portugal on a retreat. And my dad had gone into hospital already before for, a, for a, some kind of heart problem. And the, about 10 days into the retreat, Charlotte called and said, your dad's taken a really bad turn The doctor said you should come back. So I, so I flew into, he, he survived that, but I flew into Luton Airport and Charlotte came to meet me. And I walked through the arrivals hall and as I walked towards her, she just touched me lightly on my forearm to say hi, and as she did. When she touched me on my forearm, it was like an electric shock going through my body. My whole body jolted. I didn't know why or what it meant, but it was the first time it had ever happened. And I knew something fundamental was different when that touch. I knew it. And we got home, and I just needed to get to the hospital and look after my dad. So I couldn't really focus on it, but I knew it was in the back of my mind. And I... Later, I said to her, yeah, are "You' okay? while I've been on the retreat, has anything changed? Are you, are you all right? what's happened?" Oh no, I'm okay. I'm just a bit restless. I'm just a bit restless. and I, I knew it really was more than that. I was scared to push because I didn't want to know what it was in one way, but I did, and we you know after three or four weeks of very, very difficult conversations, she'd admit she admitted she'd met someone and it had started to change how she was thinking about her life
0: we were having a conversation before we started recording about kind of different people with various stages of kind of change crises going on singles presenting in different ways uh, and i guess i'm kind of consciously of like, on the one hand somebody might be listening and go well i can't now cut all of these ties right maybe because of yeah. work so like what do i do then so maybe like i recognize some of these signals or like not in the same way, not that my wife wants to leave me or whatever it might be. But, you know, clearly, if I'm honest with myself, there are markers here. There are signs. There are signals. I don't know. Maybe it's illness. Maybe it is just feelings of exhaustion or whatever it might be um, or just kind of feelings of disease. You know, there are kind of signals. But I guess part of the thing that exacerbates that is people's feeling like an inability to act on it so it's like oh well, it's like easy Ray, he went away for 14 years <laughs> but it's like what can i do now do you know what i mean i can't go away for 14 years i've got a six-year-old a 10-year-old or a whatever i don't know the the yeah. kind of thing is for me
1: the I, the fact that i was abroad and traveling that's a red herring that isn't the thing that changed my life what changed my life was having an opportunity to really examine beliefs i was holding about how things are and really examine my patterns of thinking around certain parts of my life. Now, I've coached hundreds of people in the last 15 years, and virtually none of them have massively changed their circumstances, but they have really deeply changed their thinking and you know, looked at some of the beliefs they've held for a long time and said, does that belief really serve me anymore? Can I jettison it? And I've seen some huge shifts in those people in terms of their quality of life, their enjoyment, their pleasure of life, with very little change in their circumstances. So the changes we're talking about here, that transformation of one's life is not circumstantial. It's not dependent on location, geography, and buildings, houses, or any of those things. It's an inner journey. It's it's the the reorientation, I would describe it in a simple way, is you shift from an outside-in way of living to an inside-out way of living. That's the big shift that, I'm, that I took myself, that I navigated through that complete reorientation. And that's the shift I invite most people I meet when I coach to take. Because when you do that, you realize that your happiness is not dependent on a new job or a salary increase or a car or a house or a holiday in Mexico. It's not dependent on any of that. It's something you can choose in this moment now. But the only reason you don't choose it is you're holding a belief that is stopping you. Or you're holding a thought pattern that's stopping you. And you're not understanding that that's what's stopping you. It's not anything outside or money or any of those things. It's
0: just not. What would, be, what would be some examples of some of those beliefs which are stopping you?
1: Yeah, like, you know, oh, I can't do that. And that's way too risky. I can't take that risk. I might never find a job again. Or I'm not good enough. No one would employ me. Or if I had a gap in my CV, no one would be interested in me working with them. These are all just limiting beliefs. They're not, they're not absolute truths there's no in fact for most people there's no truth to it at all you know they're, they're just it's the guards that keep you in your comfort zone and anytime you go to the perimeter of your comfort zone and look about think about going up through the fence and out the guys go "Oh, no, i wouldn't do that yeah it could be a fear guard always you know you don't want to do that you might run out of money and never get a job again or you're like who the hell are you to think that you could do that you know you're nobody you're not good enough for pride you know or you know, I can't. It just just would break my heart to not be able to do this. I, I'd be too sad. <laughs> there's lots of different versions. There's tons, but there's a there's a team of guards that protect us from making those decisions, and and that's in our thinking, and we don't know that's in our thinking until we start to really deeply examine it.
0: Yeah, and so uh, what? What would? How do you kind of help people? First of all, identify those things. I, I, firstly, see the guard. And secondly, disempower the guard. Yeah,
1: because you, you, by recognizing, you know, like the, the, I learned from the Buddhist teachings that, in the monastery that I went on, at least 50% of the work of transforming from outside into inside out is just simply awareness. So heart the heavy lifting is becoming aware of the impact of your current system. That's it. You don't need to actually do that much. Once you start to notice that your own thinking is what's putting the limits, just noticing that and keep noticing that starts to actually evaporate it. <laughs> it's a weird thing. I don't know how that works, but that's what actually happens. You start to shift it, and you go, "Oh, you know what? I'd normally say no to going to that invite, but tonight I'm going to say yes."
0: Yeah, no, and I, I can echo that too. You no, know, from my kind of own experience, the uh, the sort of the the libera- the liberating power of noticing these things uh, and then the more you kind of are in a space where you're able to notice these things the more that you notice them and so the you know be they being the thoughts the beliefs the ideas the stories that we tell ourselves about how things are and how they need to be the, you know these create tracks and in any way like you know really usefully they've created tracks in our lives because it's kind of the thing which has sort of determined us to kind of work in a certain way be a certain person do a certain thing but of course yeah. they become they are then tracks uh, and so, you know, it's like, at some point, it's worthwhile kind of just reflecting, hold a second, are those rails heading in the direction that I actually want to be? Coming? Well, they kind of work for a
1: period, don't they? You know, if you're as a child, if you're wanting to avoid being criticized, you, d- you develop a pattern of thinking and behavior that stops that from happening. And that pattern, you think you've discarded when you get older and you grow up to be an adult, but it's playing out when you're an adult. It's just it becomes an automatic reaction in certain trigger moments. And you don't think, oh, my God, I'm just reacting that pattern that I had as a child. In this instance, I'm not under threat. I'm not being criticized. I'm actually being given some useful feedback here. I could just put that to one side and accept this feedback and use it to be better. But we don't. We go, oh, no, no, don't criticize me. Don't criticize me. You're playing the same patterns out without knowing it. And and so this is where it no longer serves. It did serve you for a while. It did protect you, and it was good that you had it. But we don't do this constant updating. It's a bit like, like you're 40 years old and you're still running Windows XP instead of Windows instead of the current version. You know,
0: I think lots of people uh, either you know really viscerally or just in a sort of more in a subtler way. Are confronted with like we're talking about tremors, these ideas, the signals that something's not right. And you know, like maybe that then presents in a sort of cataclysmic way, like with a personal illness or sort of loss, familial loss, or sort of company sort of crumbling, whatever it might be, the, the sort of structures around which we've kind of depended, which force us to engage with this. But but oftentimes it's you know. It's not that stark, so we can sort of try and do the work of ignoring it for some time. Uh, But one of the things I'm really curious about is the change that's kind of happening in that in that moment in those times, and it feels to me like, and you know, it's kind of more or less helpful as an idea. I'm just really curious about it. That part of what's happening, and I know uh, Jung talks a lot about this in a lot of kind of his writing, that there's the whole kind of first track of life, which is playing out the the structures of society, playing out the stories and ideas which we've kind of inherited from family and society and beyond. Um, and I don't know if he articulates it this way uh, or 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 if I've just made it up uh, or, or rather than made it, I mean, kind of bastardized his thinking, but it's like this idea that, that if that's the first track, this is the first path, but in a sense, something else is wanting to be born. Something else is wanting to be birthed, birth, which is bigger than us, it's bigger than Ben, it's bigger than Ray, it's bigger than anyone else on, on the kind of work that I've been scrabbling to do. Because like you, I was the same in running my company, I also was just the driven guy who was just like, no, we push on. And somehow my life and the company was like a sausage machine in the sense of how hard the story, one of the stories I had was how hard uh, how hard we were determined how successful we would be, uh, because I think that is a story of our culture too, which I don't think is a very helpful story. But also how much, like in a way, how much meat I stuffed into the machine would determine how much sausage came out the other side. Um, and so, so that means it's like a constantly driving on. And of course, when you're doing that one, that's exhausting, and it's <laughs> very difficult to sustain that forever and I think I got to the point where I was no longer able to sustain that, which was like my my kind of uh, transition point in this sense, but I'm curious about this idea that maybe something is trying to Get our attention. Something else is trying to be born that we are more or less able to acknowledge. Uh, in, and, and if not here, and I'm kind of really curious about going back to the point you were talking about, this vision you had for the company about people thriving in a way which is kind of bigger that I am bigger than work or you know, there is something much bigger that I'm part of that sort of touches on and relies on and pulls on this whole kind of spectrum of sort of possibility. And that vision that you articulated for the company in a sense was the vision that you ended up playing out for yourself.
1: You know, like for me, I, I've, how it's come to me in my own belief system now, and I'm speaking purely individually here, not to indoctrinate anyone or to get anyone to agree. I feel like I am a spirit living in a physical human body temporarily. That's how I see my life. The spirit is, you you know, part of a universal intelligence that we're all connected because we know from metaphysics, we know in quantum physics, that we are all just one, literally one, energetic whole, you know, we're all, we we have the appearance and the illusion of separation because of our physical bodies, but actually we're just particles with spaces floating in a big energy cloud. We all know this. We all kind of know this in our head, but we don't believe it. We don't act as if it's really true. And so I think there is a universal intelligence in play that is driving every person towards their highest possibility and it's our job to recognize and get into alignment with that dynamic. And the more that we can do that, the more we evolve our consciousness. And when people say to me, we talk about purpose sometimes in my coaching work, and you know it's a delicate subject for a lot of people, but I've come to think that my purpose, why, I was, why was I born? What am I doing here? What's my life about? Look, the, the answer I've come to with that is I've always been a, torchbearer for greater human consciousness. In whatever job I've done, whatever friendships I've been in, whatever relationships I've had, I've always, always been passionate and interested about being awake, being conscious, being self-aware, and helping other people do that, and myself. And I still am. I'm on that journey. So I sort of feel like I'm a bit of a lighthouse for this. And so I'm not too preoccupied with the form of my life. You know, am I in this job or that job? Am I living in this town or that town? Because they're they're important decisions, but they're not the big ones. I'm, and more important for me is like, am I shining my my lighthouse in the best way? Am I serving humanity the best way I can? And am I enjoying the journey of my own evolution? And can I enjoy it more? You know, what can I do? So those are some of the things that I think. And I think that dry, that spirit that tr- what I call the true self, the non-conditioned self, because our personality. Is a programmed conditioned version of ourselves it's not really us in my case it was ray the businessman in london you know but once you sort of shed that skin who are you you know who are you who is your true self which is not defined by any circumstance
0: one of the things which comes to mind just as you were saying that last bit because question was coming up in my mind oh you know how, how might we help somebody kind of get some objectivity to so that they too can just have their moment of going. Oh, I'm not, you know, insert name here. The person, you know, I'm not just that person as the businessman. I'm not just that person. You know, all of those things are are a kind of role. And I, uh, I was kind of wondering about ways we might do that. The thought which then came to my mind is one of the revealing points for me. One of my another one of my traumas, was when my son, who was then four, said to me. And I appreciate kind of the the value of these kind of questions is all dependent on context. So it doesn't really uh, sort of transfer. But in a sense, it was it was uh, useful, revelatory for me in that kind of totally innocent way a four year old can do. He said to me, "Um, why do you work, daddy? And I was like, fuck, why do you work? (laughs) And it was like, and obviously the, you say it to people, the first thing is all oh, for money. And then it was like, hold on a second. Right. So yes, we need money to be able to kind of function and interact with the kind of world. But it's like, really? Is that it? Is that the reason that that we kind of work? And it was like one of, so for me, like one of the tremors was, was that. It was like this kind of invitation, a question, the, the kind of, you know, beautiful in its simplicity, you know, Why do you work? And actually, that's also a question I sort of explore with some some of my clients. You know, why do you do the work that you do? And so something which kind of helps people reflect back on some of the choices that they've made to help them understand that, you know, there are just these kind of roles and maybe these roles are sort of clouding them, taking them away from this idea of kind of spirit, whatever anybody's interpretation of that is. Because like you're talking about, I, I you know, that, that resonates with me a lot. And I think anybody listening to this, the types of people, you know, whatever your interpretation is, whatever your understanding is, it doesn't really matter. But I think embracing the idea that clearly, there's a whole lot of stuff that we really don't know, Uh, And so being kind of open to some of the kind of magic in that, I think is a hugely kind of inspiring thing. Because like you're talking about, that's kind of led you to an ongoing inquiry, an ongoing invitation, which is sort of full of creative opportunity in a sense.
1: It is. And there's a lot of, there's so many hypotheses and theories around these things. Like, for example, why do we have individually the values we have? They're all so different. You and me, our values are going to be different. How can that be possible you can have so different values, even from your own siblings. You're raised by the same parents in the same family, yet your values can be massively different. How is that possible? Some people say, well, there's past lives to be taken into account. If you do, if you do any systemic constellation work, there's a whole ancestral aspect to who we are that we, we're, we're totally oblivious to because we're, sort of not, we're not encouraged to think about those things when we're at school. We're processed through an education system which conditions us in a very, very, very narrow way. I'm not a big fan of it. Neither was Sir Ken Robinson, who spent his whole life rallying against that system and how it killed the creativity of individuals. Because governments don't want free-thinking, creative individuals. They want compliant, obedient workers who... They can tax, so there's a lot of forces in play in our society that are. When you start to really examine it, you can sort of make sense of why the things are in the status quo we're in.
0: And I guess a lot of the thing around that is, you know, it's not even like that. That that is some sort of conspiratorial idea. Well, it's actually not
1: even consp- It's plain. It's in plain. Right. Action. Exactly. It's well documented that these think tanks and foundations have steered the education system to suit their
0: their corporate needs. They have. One of my uh, boys is uh, 12 now, and he's really suffering in school actually because you know, for all of the reasons that we're sort of talking about. And I I really like all of uh, Ken Robinson's writing to it. It's such a sort of struggle thing to sort of look at somebody who is also struggling because basically what they're trying to do, you know, he's very kinesthetic learner. He learns by moving. Like if you leave him to his own devices, like Ken Robinson will talk about in the thing, if you leave Felix to his own devices, he will move things around. He will still create play situations with different things. And so he learns by moving. That's his sort of way of processing the world. And of course, what school is making him do is basically sit down (laughs) and shut up, which is like a total nightmare. But there was an interesting thing I read about the schooling system, which was obviously birthed 250 years ago at the time, the the colonial time, where um, to manage the empire... They needed a consistent set of, basically, people to write in a certain way and to account in a certain way. So that I could count in a certain, you know, that people could count and that people could record, right? The three Rs. Right, right, exactly. And if if there was the commonality of that, people would come out of the system and they could reliably be sent anywhere in the world where the empire was and manage the affairs of of the state, right? And it's really interesting that and essentially that is the same system that is producing tomorrow's people.
1: <laughs> and it mirrors the same thing I was talking about as us as individuals. We don't update our own operating system. We don't We don't get rid of beliefs that don't serve us anymore. We've got a system that doesn't really serve humanity anymore. But it's unexamined and it's also in the best interests of a few people to keep it the same. And they have a lot of power and sway with that. So. They're not really wanting to really change the status quo that much. No, because really. no, it,
0: costs, it costs them. Yeah,
1: it costs them. They're they're benefits substantially financially, you know, so, and, and you know, a lot of our economies are built around consumption. And when people realise that most of our income is used for shit we don't need, you know, to impress people we don't even like, you know, if that was to stop, the whole thing's going to collapse, you know. So, so we're, you know, it's an interesting time for humanity as well as us as individuals.
0: I'm really interested in, the, in that that kind of point around uh, the the kind of how you kind of rug pull because the sort of systemic thing that we're you know essentially up against in a way like the the kind of norms of our culture which you know even before like AI was a thing this idea that you know it's like the the kind of culture basically performs what it's programmed to do right. And or society performs what it's programmed to do in the same way institutions perform what the institution is is programmed to do. And of course, we just sort of slot into that. We become kind of nodes in that thing. So if the institutions or culture at large is programmed to generate profit above all else, then of course, that's what Becomes and then it's supported by laws and all of those kind of things, and and a lot of the problems that we sort of are encountering, you know, be they ecological, be it climate, be it social, be it political, be it economic, are because the system, in a sense, is a little bit kind of run out of control, uh, and or not a little bit run out of control, but is kind of running out of control. And and a part of the thing around that is our inability as participants in it, like us. I was trying to avoid the word using individual because that is sort of reinforcing the point, but to recognise our own complicity in serving the system through no ill will, but it's just because these are this is the stuff of our culture. And then the, the difficulty that people have, like you were talking about, about redoing the program. So yeah, a three hundred year old education system finds it very difficult to reprogram itself because there's inertia, organizational, you know, institutional inertia. There's vested interest. There's you know all, all of those things kind of going on. And also at the very heart of it all is the human mind, which is deeply unable <laughs> to or finds extremely hard rather to let go of one thing which no longer serves it and step into something which might better serve it and i kind of often wonder whether maybe if we just focus on that (laughs) you know helping people let go of the thing which is not really serving you anymore to kind of step into something which might better serve you maybe there's like this huge judo flip maneuver that happens (laughs) that just kind of orientates us into a into a kind of different trajectory
1: yeah I don't know the answer to this. I mean, but when we look back through history, you know, the the thing that sort of really inevitably happens, you know, because no one g- agrees what does really serve us or not, and everyone's got vested interests. Usually, it takes a you know a humongous conflict in which a lot of people get killed for for a reset to happen. You know, that's normally what happens.
0: I was talking to somebody a, a few weeks ago. He was a really long term, very very long term, deeply committed climate activist. And um, his activism was really, has been really from a place of fear, a very deep, deep fear about, um, you know, what's happening, essentially. And he's been an activist for over 20 years now. So, you know, which is sort of, you know, kind of well transcends where most people, most people's consciousness is around, has been around it. And a lot of it, as has been from a place of deep fear. All of his work then has been in, in around trying to get people to notice, trying to get people to change. And of course, that is a sort of deeply, sort of difficult place to be because, you know, like I talk about, you know, we talk about it's very difficult to hold on to. You know, if I'm measuring myself on the outcome, I'm measuring myself on the change which happens as a consequence of my work. It's very difficult because ultimately I don't have any control over whether if I try and make this campaign that gets people to think about something in a certain way, if they don't if nothing materially changes as a result of that, then I just feel like my work in a way is kind of worthless if I'm kind of wedded to that idea. And I think he's really sort of struggled with a lot of his work because he feels like he's basically dedicated the last 20 years of his life to trying to get people to you know engage with these issues somewhat and just feeling sort of ever more frustrated that actually nothing seems to be changing and worse things seem to be accelerating in in the wrong in the wrong direction and he was uh, sharing this as part of a group that I was part of and uh, just before that I'd had a conversation with a guy who um, was actually it was a teaching also from a Buddhist a Buddhist monk and he he was talking about um there's a sort of branch, of the Thai Forest Network of monasteries. And it had been started in the 1960s by a teacher who became famous because he was the guy who taught a lot of the people who went to America and brought Buddhism to America in the 60s and 70s. He was a teacher called Ajahn Chah. And um, he sort of, sort of, like I said, it became sort of somewhat well known. Anyway, he had set up this monastery network, which is called the Thai Forest Net- Monastery Network. And... Um, the network, you know, now has something like three hundred different monasteries, which uh, span four continents and ten countries. Um, and so, the current current day abbot of this monastery network, and so this kind of hugely complicated organisation, like I said, spans four continents, ten countries, three hundred s- subsidiaries, all reporting in thousands of people. He's responsible for all doing really important, deeply emotional work, difficult work you know, sort of managing a sort of crumbling, constantly crumbling real estate network. And uh, the guy in this teaching was recounting how the abbot who leads this is able to do this with this sort of like perfect sort of ease. He doesn't have an iPhone even, you know, like the horror of that. No iPhone, no constant sort of stream of emails, seemingly no sort of army of support staff. It's just this man sitting in his hut in Thailand, essentially overseeing this entire network. And um, he was he was talking about this, and I flip this story often to sort of talk to people I work with who are in senior business roles. And so I say to him, like if, you know, if you would imagine a CEO running an organisation spans four continents, ten countries, three hundred subsidiaries, all these thousands of people, yeah, he does this. You know, imagine without even a phone or emails. Would you like to learn from that guy? To which obviously they all go, yes, yes, of course. I was like, well, he's actually a Buddhist monk and he's the abbot of a monastery network. And the interesting thing about um, how he has kind of how he does his work, which goes all the way back to how Ajahn Chah set up that monastery network, was based on two principles, two values, essentially, which is personal responsibility and community awareness. Uh, And uh, there was a story about when Ajahn Chah first set up the, uh, the monastery in the UK. They came over. It was like the 1970s. And they'd been invited over because to see whether it would be a good place to have a, a monastery. And they had a trip. And at the end of the trip, Ajahn Char, who was there with two of the monks who, who uh, sort of uh, were traveling with him, studying with him. And um, Ajahn Chah turned to one of them and said, OK, yeah, I think this would be a good place to set up a monastery. Uh, I'd like you to stay here now to, to set it up. And um, so good luck. Keep in touch. And and so the point around this is just that these kind of values, essentially, you know, it's personal, trust yourself, you know what to do here, right? You know what to do, total personal responsibility, but community awareness. And these values kind of, and I offered this to the guy who was the climate activist, who'd been sort of struggling, but had also brought this work, this group together. And I was saying, you know, maybe actually, it's in the shift to these values that kind of open up something, like, actually, if we all really understood what personal responsibility and community awareness meant. And we did the work day by day by day of really understanding what that means, because obviously the abbot of that network now has 50 years of practice of doing this every day. So way beyond what we would ever kind of imagine or hope to get to. But it's like the power of an underlying story, the power of underlying values which do kind of open up can have super transformative effect. Yeah, I mean
1: I I totally resonate with everything you've just said about about the magic. You know, stage magicians, they, they're great, but it's illusionary because it's all sleight of hand and they use techniques and tricks to fool you into thinking it's magic. But this is a kind of magic that's real magic that isn't explainable by sleight of hand. Like when you start, I found, uh, so I'll talk about myself. The more I, I got into my journey, the more I started to live my values out in every little decision, in every moment. So I have a value of love and kindness so the more kind i was the more generous i was in my time then when i needed something and i couldn't figure out how to get the thing i needed someone would just appear someone would turn up someone would literally it was like it was like always inside i can give you loads of examples where this happened and i thought wow this system of living one's values from the inside and radiating it out the inside out way this magnetizes the universe to pull things into reality that you need instantly. I mean, it's instant. Um, And 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 I'll give you an example. You know, like I remember after a couple of years of traveling, thinking I'd been to an elephant sanctuary in Thailand and I'd been to an orphanage in Nepal. And I remember thinking and feeling, God, I'd really like to help those things because they're, They're doing great things for their local communities. They're poor. They've got no money. They're doing just great stuff. What could I do to help? What could I do to help? And I just remember thinking as I ate every meal and I was at every social gathering and trekking in the mountains, it was always in my thinking, what could I do? What could I do? And I just remember thinking, universe, you know, just, just show me a way forward with this, will you? I want to do something. I'm not quite sure what. And then shortly after that, I met a guy traveling and he was a six times marathon runner. He was 10 years younger than me. I was 48 when I met him. And um, I said, what do you do for leisure then? He said, I run. I like running marathons. I said, oh, tell me about that. And as he spoke about him running marathons, I could feel my body tingling. I didn't understand it, but God, I just went, oh my God, my body is really liking hearing this. I said, I'm getting a weird reaction to you saying all this. I said, do you think I could run a marathon? And he looked at me and he said, have you ever run before? I said, no, not even a hundred meters. He said, well, you look quite fit. I mean, he said, I'll tell you what, I mean, if you decide to stay here where I live for six months, I'll train you how to run a marathon. I said, Really? He said, Yeah. Said, he said, oh, That's, you know, I'll get you ready for a marathon. I'll show you what everything you need to do. I'll train with you. I said, I said, I shook his hand and said, Right, it's a deal. And I did that. And I ran the New York Marathon on the 1st of November 2009. And when he asked me, which marathon do you want to run? I said, Well, I'd love to run the New York Marathon. It's the biggest in the world. I've been in New York two years before to watch the end when Paula Radcliffe won it. And I remember turning to my friend Angie and saying, she said, are you ever going to run a marathon? I said, no, no. And I said, but if I did, it would be this one. I wouldn't run run any other one. It'd have to be this one. That was two years before. So when Matt said, what marathon do you want to run? I said, I want to run the New York Marathon, but I'd never get a place in that. There's so many people. He said, why don't you go in the ballot? I went in the ballot and I got a place first time first time i mean it was just i knew this was a confirmation signal that i was living in alignment with everything in my values he showed up i got a place easily i put the call out to friends for money to raise and i got fifteen thousand dollars in donations you know and, and, and all of this was just me <laughs> it wasn't it didn't have a team or a company or anything it was just me So I knew I was living in alignment and everything was confirming it all the time, all the time
0: it was happening. Beautiful. And, you know, the invitation with all of this is don't believe Ray, experiment with yourself, isn't it? It's like, okay, what actually is important to me? What are my values? What are the things around which I want to base my decisions? And if I consciously, deliberately, intentionally practice living from that place, see how it works out for you. And I
1: did put my, I I came up with my own six rules for happiness in my journey, the the six rules I lived by that worked for me. I've shared those in the book, you know, so the six rules I'm talking about are explained and they're in there. Not to say, I actually put them in to say, I don't know what your rules are. Here's mine. Um, Use some of these if you want, but I think you're going to come up with your own rules, but here's mine. So you've got to start at least.
0: And so where, if people want to uh, learn about those, those six rules, where would they find the book and more information about you?
1: There's a website called lifewithoutatide.com People can buy the book directly. If they want a signed copy, they have to order it there because I will personally sign it and post it from my home. Um, the book's on Amazon. You know, that's where most people buy the book. Um, it's on Amazon paperback and Kindle.
0: Well, thank you very much, Ray. I've really enjoyed yeah. talking to you.
1: Yeah, what a great conversation.
0: Thank you again for listening. We really hope you enjoyed that conversation. As ever, if you like what we're doing, uh, if you think anyone, if anyone you know would benefit from listening to this conversation, enjoy it or dislike it even as much as you have, please feel free to share it. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to do that. The sharing is the lifeblood of this. Sharing and liking, I think, are the, the currency of our modern time. So if you take a moment to, you know, share it with somebody who you think would benefit, we hugely appreciate that. Or even take some time to write a review, uh, irrespective. If you like what we're doing, you can find out more if you search up peripheral hyphen thinking." dot com you'll find your way to the podcast website you can sign up there you can register there you can keep abreast of everything that we're doing we be sure to keep you notified as soon as the next conversations go live meantime thanks again for your time thanks again for your ears uh, and we look forward to you joining us next time